Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, and we're here every Saturday, even in COVID times, COVIDless times, at 12 noon every Saturday, to defend and to promote public education. That is public education, which is public in purpose. It's also public in outcome. It's public above all in access. It's accessible to all children. And uh, we have quite an interesting group of, well, we've got two press releases this afternoon, but we have some very interesting material to tell you about because I doubt that you'll hear about it from anybody else. Our press release 863 deals with charities. There's been some very interesting material on the John Menadue blog this week uh, about the Charities Commission. And we don't often talk about it, but there is an iceberg of funding in Australia, and that is there for private schools because they are, even all those wealthy private schools with all their endowments and their prime real estate, they are charities. They are charitable and they don't have to pay any tax. So we're going to uh, talk about that this afternoon. Oliver's going to help me with uh, press release 863. Then after that we'll have a bit of a break and we'll have press release 864, which is even more substantial because over in America there is profiteering on online learning. And Jeff Bryant, who is a researcher for our schools, a group over there, a public school group, he has written a very, very interesting article about what is actually happening in America. We've seen what happens here when our TAFE system was privatised. But what's going to happen if our online virtual learning is privatised? Because it's happening in America. So we're going to talk about that also. Then Dale, who's become quite an expert on Shaw Grammar and a few other (laughs) uh, wealthy private schools and their boys, is going to read a very interesting article on private schools blessed out of reach. And then because people have been complaining that we haven't had a great state school, we'll have a great state school at the end of the program. So let's get on with it, shall we? Oliver, over to you. The funding iceberg in Australian education, charities and the worst regulator. Thank you very much, Jean. At no point in discussing in discussion of education funding in Australia is the level of indirect funding calculated. Taxation expenditures or taxation exemptions for private schools, which are automatically charitable institutions under common law, are rarely mentioned. These include tax exemptions for income tax, GST, land tax, stamp duty, capital gains and payroll tax. The fact that private schools are exempt from payroll tax, while public schools are not, has been a matter of contention for decades. Some attempts have been made to quantify these indirect forms of funding for the private sector, but these have been haphazard and do not usually appear in public records. There is evidence that some taxation departments keep unofficial records of taxation expenditures, and municipal councils are resentful and keep records of rates foregone. On November 5th, 2019, in The Age, 
Jewel Topfield and Royce, Royce Miller informed us that in submission to the state government's rates review, the Municipal Association of Victoria, representing 79 councils' claims, 12% of the City of Melbourne's rates base is exempt. Homeowners in the wealthy, leafy suburbs of East Melbourne are hardest hit. The city of Burundura in Melbourne's eastern suburbs has 69 properties owned by private schools, according to the submission. These properties are exempted from paying almost 1.4 million in general rates each year. The MAV estimates, which is the estimates, which is the equivalent of 0.94% of residential rates. The MAV says private schools and universities have a long-standing exemption from paying rates. While this once could have been justified, given how private schools and universities have evolved over time to the commercial institutions they are today, this rate exemption cannot be justified on fairness and equity grounds, the submission said. In 2005, the deal Ferguson in the Business Review Weekly estimated that charities were the 70, 70 billion sacred cow of the Australian economy and the listed income and assets of the major religious organisations. Thank you very much, Jane. Back to you. Yes, well, in the, in the 1990s, there was concern about all of this because charities were actually getting away with new murder. They were getting quite a lot of money out of people and then doing the wrong thing by them. And uh, they set up a charities commission. Uh, the first person who was on this, uh, leading this commission was a lady called Susan Pascoe, who was um, very much attached in many ways to the Catholic Church. But there has been a change, and uh, a man called Gary Johns was appointed by the Labor Party. And Gary Johns is a very interesting character. Uh, a William um, DeMaria has written a very interesting article on the John Menadieu blog site, which we refer you to. And he says that charity scams are on a rocket trajectory, and they certainly would be here in COVID times. Since 2019, they've risen by a massive 70%, and there have been more than a 1,000 charity scam reports since the beginning of this year. Now, what stands between us and our generosity and gullibility and the sociopaths who wish to use those virtues like passwords to get into our bank accounts? I don't know how many how many times a day listeners you get a request for money across your your outlook, across your emails, but I certainly do. Now why are the charities Australian charities and not for profits commissioner not doing something about it? Because there's much that's wrong with this regulator. It has an imbalance in its mix of responsibilities, its compliance compliance budget is only half of its IT budget. And the Commission's annual reports no longer publish the number of compliance staff, presumably because it's too embarrassing for them. There are about 17 staff in the compliance section. It's just a football team, plus reserves to oversee 58,000 registered charities. If you want to have a taxation scam, you set up a charity. And that's what's been going on for a long time. Now, the ACNC, that's the commission, is just too small for its purpose. Um, 
And the most recent reliable figures on homelessness in Australia show that for every 10,000 people, 50 actually are homeless. And then as the number of people without permanent shelter rises to cruel heights, so there's a number of, numbers of charities that seem to be working in this area. But they don't seem to be doing anything very much about it. They're getting an awful lot of money out of this because they're all very upset about the homelessness, but they're actually not dealing with the homeless situation. Now, the captain of this uh, commission now is this man called Gary Johns, and he's on a salary of 350000 plus. He's not homeless. And questions have been asked as to whether he's the right man for the job. The Community Council for Australia's Chief Executive, David Crosby, said this. The Commissioner is a very tough gig. It's a very difficult job. It requires real expertise, personal capacity and a commitment to enhancing the valuable work done in our charity sector. But Dr Johns has demonstrated none of these characteristics, he says. Uh, so he's very unhappy about it. And his career, Gary Johns' career is very interesting. He won the North Brisbane Working Class Season Victory at Cliffhanger 1987 um, federal election. But he's very much a marketeer, uh, a new Labor man under Hawke and Keating. Uh, and um, when John Howard brought the Conservatives back to power in 1996 as the so-called champion of the Aussie battler, John was defeated. So he secured employment with the IPA. Now, the IPA is, of course, a non-government organisational union set up to investigate charities that attack business. Now he runs the charity regulator. And uh, he is also um, very much interested in the Institute of Public Affairs. That's the IPA, of course, which we all know is a a pretty right-wing organisation. So uh, this article, and I recommend it, about Gary Johns uh, indicates that we're in trouble when it comes to charities. Uh, the so-called uh, wealthy schools, um, or so-called charities that are wealthy schools, uh, nobody's actually looking into what, what is really going on. And uh, the idea or the, the, the proposal put by this gentleman who has recently written about um, Gary Johns is that we have a national charity regulator that is too small, it's too timid, it's too confused, and it's too powerless. It's just not fit for purpose. So I thought that you'd be interested in this charities business because it is the iceberg of funding for private schools in Australia. And back in 2005, it was a $70 billion business. Imagine what it's like now when in fact by 2023, the private school sector alone will be receiving $56 billion from our governments, at least, at least. And if we double that, we might have something like what we're really dealing with and uh, a substantial part of the iceberg, the money that we never see for private education, should be looked at by this toothless tiger the Charities Commission. So we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back with some very interesting news from America. 
because as we all know, when America sneezes or tries something, Australia usually follows suit. And this is one thing that we really don't want to happen in Australia. So, a bit of a break. And uh, when we come back, it will be press release 864. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Good afternoon, listeners. Here we are back with the Dogs Program with our press release 864, which you will find on our website at www.adogs.info. And the heading is Beware Profiteers in Online Learning. And this is an article by Jeff Bryant from over in America who often contributes to the Diane Ravitch blog. And he has an article on how online learning companies are using the pandemic to take over classroom teaching. So I'll hand over to Oliver, who will read us the first section of this very interesting article. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you very much, Jean. Opening schools during a pandemic in an underfunded urban district like Providence, Rhode Island, where buildings are in miserable physical conditions, is already a huge undertaking, but the situation is made worse when district leaders bring in private contractors who know nothing about the community and make no effort to collaborate with public school teachers. That's what's happening in Providence, according to Maribeth Calabro, the president of the Providence Teachers Union, who spoke to me in a Zoom call. As part of its plan to start a new school year with a gradual opening for in-person learning and an online option for all students, the district district announced the creation of a new virtual learning academy operated by Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, by a Scottsdale, Arizona-based company, Edgenuity. When Calibro looked into Edgenuity, if she found out the parent company, Weld North Education, was owned by a private equity firm, which had recently acquired Odysseyware. She recalled that when Providence had used Odysseyware for a high school credit recovery program, there were problems with students 
cheating. Students were quickly flying through courses that should have taken weeks or months, she remembered. Calibro is also concerned the Edgenuity platform requires little to no human instruction from Providence teachers and will instead rely on learning coaches, who are expected to be the parent, guardian, or someone else in the household of each child. She feels most parents signing up for the program may not realise this because the district's description of the program largely relegates the complete explanation of the responsibilities of a learning coach to a list of bullet points parents have to click a link to get to. Calibro is also miffed at the process in which Edgenuity was hired. Since the district was taken over by the state in 2019, local officials have no clear authority in decision-making, and a state commissioner appointed by the governor has complete control of the budget, program, and personnel. Contract terms for the Edgenuity deal have yet to be made public as of this writing. They issued a plan that had no input from teachers, she said. We should be using the expertise we have here, our teachers, to improve on what we did in the spring. She accuses district leaders, both the state commissioner and the superintendent, of picking an off-the-shelf canned product without any rigorous review by teachers. Also interesting, the sign-up deadline for the Virtual Learning Academy was before parents would know whether their home schools were opening with in-person or remote learning, giving it a head start for parents wanting to secure an early option for their children. Despite Calibro's concerns, 6,200 students have enrolled in the Virtual Learning Academy, more than one in four students in the district. The rush to outsource teaching to online learning companies is happening in school districts across the country. Douglas County, Colorado, a relatively affluent and mostly white school district near Denver, is very different from Providence, but teachers there have similar complaints about having Edgenuity take over the district's online learning. Teachers had no formal role in choosing the program. Kelly Labor told me in a phone call, it was very top-down. Labor is the president of the local affiliate of the American Federation of Teachers. Also, the process was very rushed, Labor said. The first mention of pub, the first public mention of the deal with Edgenuity was at an August 4 school board meeting. According to Labor, when teachers were scheduled to report to work on August 10th, the start of the online learning program was eventually delayed to August 31st, the Douglas County News Press reported. Further, when principals were told that instead of following a district-wide implementation plan, each school would need to develop its own plan, they had only one week to figure out how to employ the platform, Labor said. As school districts across the nation face the daunting task of opening a new school year with online learning or a blend of online and in-person, many contracted the work to private companies. And there's widespread evidence these arrangements are rush jobs that give teachers and parents no say in the adoption process as taxpayer funds are wasted on products of questionable quality. With the pandemic, districts have struggled and made hasty decisions and some have been enticed by the promises of the established online providers, writes Gary Myron, a professor of evaluation, measurement, and research at Western Michigan University, in an email. These companies can say all kinds of things about their awesome platforms and curricula, but the evidence shows that students who use the platforms fail, and taxpayers are ripped off. That's it for this, session, this section. Back to you, Jane. Yes, so um, 
the teachers uh, in America, some of these properties think that they can actually just do without teachers and make money out of parents. Um, uh, I'm just wondering when uh, Australia is going to start thinking this way as well because uh, the um, federal government certainly despises our most important workers, our teachers and our nurses. But um, we'll have a little break and um, we'll then get to Dale because she's got an even more interesting uh, section to read because students are being treated as widgets. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawai Mulbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on Understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. CR remains closed to all broadcasters and guests until further notice. The good news is that so many of our programs are producing new shows each week from home. From Lost in Science to Living Free. Done by Law to Defence of Government Schools. Concrete Gang to Chronically Chilled. Mafalda to Music Matters. We're here with compelling content and rousing radio. Listen live or listen later. Tune in, stay safe and keep listening. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. with the Dogs Program. We're here every Saturday to inform you about what is going on in public education, not only in Australia but around the world. And we've been discussing how certain uh, virtual learning corporations are making money out of insecure parents, particularly in America, and, um, and students who have to remain at home. 
So Dale's going to tell us how every student in this worldview is a widget. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, the, uh, I've got the rest of the article here. Uh, every student is a widget. Myron has written numerous research studies critical of online learning providers, particularly companies such as K-12 Inc. that operate as educational management organisations and contracts and contract with states and school districts to operate virtual charter schools, license their platforms to schools or deliver individual courses. Other online learning providers, such as Edgenuity, don't operate virtual charter schools, but instead offer a platform with pre-loaded curricula and assessments that requires the district to support and manage it. In both business models, Myron argues, online providers follow a corporate model designed for profit, not for learning. A significant source of profit, Myron explained, is that when online, providers assume students learn at their own pace and parents or other adults in the household take on the role of learning coach. The parents are essentially providing a volunteer labour force from their homes. The model these companies use is glorified, publicly funded homeschooling, said Michael Barber in a phone call. Barber, a professor at the College of Education and Health Sciences in Turo University, California, is an expert on design and support of K-12 online learning, particularly for students in rural schools. In a research brief he, con he contributed to for the National Education Policy Centre in 2019, Barber noted the role of the parent or learning coach is critical in the instructional model used by these virtual schools. And he cited examples of online learning programs in which parents were required to spend four to five hours a day assisting students. There's also profit when Teachers employed in this model are more like monitors and number and the number of students per teacher can balloon to 100 or more, according to Myron. In Providence, for example, the class size for students getting face-to-face -face instruction in the school is capped at 26, according to Calabro. But the class size for teachers overseeing a virtual classroom is 52. In his research brief, Barber cited a study finding that some teachers in online programs had nearly three times as many students per teacher than the national average. In the corporate model, Barber explained over the phone, every student is a widget. And if I'm a corporate operator, I know my job is to maximise profit per widget. Oh, thank you so much, Dale. Students as widgets, well, that's bad for teachers. It's certainly bad for students, and it's pretty bad for taxpayers because this is being paid for by the taxpayers, and these people are making profits out of us. Now, there are alternatives, of course, um, and these alternatives are here in Australia. We have virtual learning, but we have one-to-one -one virtual learning uh, in our distance education. It's, it's world-class. And around the world, there are world-class virtual learning platforms that are run by governments for the common good and for the students' good, not for profiteering. The whole purpose of private education in the end is to profit at the expense of parents and students. 
and get taxpayers' money to do so. So um, we recommend that you read this article by Jeff Bryant. He's a writing fellow and chief correspondent for a group called Our Schools in America, and he's a communications consultant, a freelance writer, and an advocacy journalist and director of the Education Opportunity Network. So he he certainly um, keeps his eye on what is going on, and um, I found that very interesting information because, as we said before, what they try on in America, they will try on here as well. So keep an eye out for students being treated as widgets by corporations who are snake oil men selling virtual education. But we'll have a bit of a break, and uh, Dale's got some other interesting material for you. Swim to me, 
Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, here we are back with the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defensive Government Schools are here every Saturday on 3CR and we have been for many years to defend and promote public education and separation of religion and the state. And uh, we have been talking in recent weeks and uh, young Dale here has been uh, making herself an expert on Shaw Grammar School and the boys. But another article, uh, again by this gentleman called William de Maria, who's got a lot to say about charities, has also um, got a very interesting article on the, the John Menard group the John Menard Jew blog again, about private schools. Blessed are the rich. So over to Dale. Thank you, Jean. Private schools, blessed are the rich by William DeMaria. Last year, Shaw's income was $87.54 million. It is a rich school for kids of rich parents. It's also a charity. Yes, just like Habitat Australia in Mount Street, North Sydney, just down the road from the school, Shaw is a registered charity. The Sydney Church of England Grammar School, Shaw, or Shaw School, is in the news at the moment. Some year, year 12 brats have added spitting on homeless people to their must-do list for their muck-up day. That's about as much attention they are going to get from me. I'm more interested in the school they go to. Last year, Shaw's income was $87.54 million. It is a rich school for the kids of rich parents. It is also a charity. As such, it gets perks such as income tax exemptions, goods and services tax concessions, and deductible gift recipient status. Try as I might, I cannot see why these super rich schools have any entitlements here. Take Wesley College in Victoria. The college had an income of $128.64 million in 2019. It's been involved in a colossal renovation program that includes $21 million for a music school, $16 million for a boarding facility, and $2.5 million to refurbish its boathouse. Just down the road, Caulfield Grammar, another registered charity, with income in excess of $100 million, has been involved in constructing a new aquatic centre that will have an Olympic-sized swimming pool with movable floors and walls and so-called well-being spaces for dance, Pilates, meditation and yoga. Along with Haley Berry College, Victoria and Knox Grammar Schools in New South Wales, these four schools are Australia's richest schools and together they spend and together spent more on new facilities and renovations than the poorest 1,800 schools combined. Wesley College, Haleybury College 
and Caulfield Grammar in Melbourne, together with Knox in Sydney, spent $402 million. They teach fewer than 13,000 students. The poorest 1,800 schools spent less than $370 million. They teach 107,000 students. Did someone just mention inequality? Tired of hanging around well-being spaces and $21 million music schools? Come with me as we visit one of Australia's poorest schools, Shidal Park Primary School in South Australia. Let us tag along with the principal, Jenny Marie Gorman, as she does her annual walk around the school with the finance officer and the grounds person. They pass windows held together with safety screens. They inspect the playgrounds built 20 years ago. They note the walls that haven't been painted in 15 years. They look again at the patch of exposed concrete in the front office, where the finance officer's swivel chair has worn a hole in the carpet. That hole will be fixed in about five years if all goes to schedule. We have a plan to carpet two or three classrooms a year based on need, so the ones with the biggest holes in them or the biggest rips get replaced first, Ms Gorman tells us. We also need new carpet in the office, but we look at what the children need first and we put ourselves at the end of the line, which is just normal teacher stuff. That's how we operate. The conclusion here is obvious. The charity concession to non-government schools is propping up a massive two-class education system. On this evidence, how can we use the word egalitarianism in a sentence now and keep a straight face? It is not just the elite schools which have this charity status. The largest charity in Australia, the University of Melbourne, has grown fat on charity tax concessions. The last time I looked, the university had revenue in excess of $2.35 billion. These tax concessions to registered charities reduce the revenue that would otherwise be available for government welfare projects. These concessions take over $1.3 billion off the government's books each year. The problem is in the definition. In 2013, the Commonwealth Parliament recognised a legislative clarification was needed to respond to the exponential growth of charities in Australia, caused by governments retracting their historical welfare obligations. It was not so much a legislative clarification as it was the government opening up unprecedented access to the tax concession trough. As long as your organisation is set up without a profit motive and comes together for a charitable purpose, then, well, welcome to the trough. What is a charitable purpose? This is a definition that can stretch across an airfield and, in, and is applied recklessly. The Queensland Sugar Limited, QSL, describes itself as a not-for-profit service organisation owned by Queensland cane growers and sugar millers, which is dedicated to serving their interests for the long-term prosperity of the Queensland sugar industry. A similarly commercial operation with no donors and no charity programs is recognised as a charity by the ACNC, in fact recognised as the fifth biggest charity in Australia. Yes, hard to believe. Even harder is to understand Queensland Sugar's deformed logic in justifying why it's self-nominated to be on the charity register. 
In its activity information statement to the charity regulator, QSL said in response to the regulator's question, what charitable work did you do in 2018? QSL replied, this is paraphrased, continued to promote the development of the Australian sugar industry through providing services to all of Queensland's growers and millers. So there you have it. Every time you sit down for a cuppa and put sugar in your tea or coffee, QSL is right behind you, nodding approvingly that it's just performed another charitable act. With millions of cups of tea and coffee consumed daily in Australia, maybe it's right that QSL is Australia's fifth largest charity. We have gone too far. After we abolished the world's worst charity regulator, the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission, we should stop all tax advantages for charities and philanthropic trusts pending a complete review of the flawed Commonwealth Charities Act of 2013. This review should cut away most existing charitable purposes and return the definition of charity back to its Samaritan roots. And that was from William DeMaria's latest book, Trouble in the Land of Giving, Australian Charities, Fraud and the State. Isn't this interesting? Every 10 years, this surfaces, this concern about what's happening with our taxes uh, in what is really the taxation expenditure area with charities. And this gentleman has come along there have been others before him. Uh, Max Wallace uh, from The Rationalists was doing this work 10 years ago. And before that, there were people, particularly in the universities, who were asking questions about this area. But it's just got worse and worse and worse in the same way as the inequality in our education system has just got worse and worse and worse. But that CSL story is really quite extraordinary. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 94198377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally we might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is, and we fight for it every day, and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Here we are back with the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. And uh, we've had some very interesting material today. 
uh, our problem, of course, in Australia for public education is that the private sector for some time, for the last 50 years, have been getting into the public treasury and getting money that should be going to our public schools and not only that, dividing our children. Then doing it not only with primary and secondary education, but also with the TAFE sector. And uh, on Thursday, on the financial review, there was a very interesting article about a huge block of land, an infill in Box Hill, prime real estate, worth about 70 million, which is being sold by a private education company, a Chinese education company that has gone broke. It's a mortgagee sale. It's interesting. There's a lot of money in education if the private sector can get its cotton-picking fingers into our taxation in the Treasury. And, of course, Josh Frydenberg and the others believe that these private people are going to lead our recovery and pay off our trillions of dollars of debt. And yet so many of them are going bankrupt. How interesting. Even even before they really have to. Now, there is also an article by Madeline Heffernan in this week's age, The Pandemic Tainted Future Put School Funding Under the Microscope. Because even though they're getting billions and billions of dollars of our money, a lot of private schools are making money out of international students who aren't coming anymore. So their business plan is in tatters. It was a no surprise as federal budget for the independent and Catholic school systems, which educate 36% of Victorian students and are subject to long-term funding arrangements. But school funding is back under the microscope as the country battles a recession and the educational consequences of long bouts of remote learning. And we're finding that people are now talking about employing tutors, that is, extra teachers for our children. While in America, they're getting more virtual learning with only one, one teacher per 100 students monitoring them. Now, the 2020-21 budget showed non-government schools will receive $12.8 billion in federal funding this year and government schools will only get $9 billion. Under the Gonski 2.0 needs-based school funding arrangement, private and government schools did receive big jumps in federal funding also. Federal government funding of non-government schools will, will rise 26% over the next three years to reach, listen to this, $59 billion. That's federal government funding only. 59 billion in 22-23. So we've got a figure there. And as I said earlier, double it and you might get the real figure. And this is in addition to the tuition fees that they charge because these schools are not open to every children like every child like public schools are. The funding for government schools, we're told, is going to increase 22% out of the same bill. Um, same period. And that will amount to about 40 billion. But given that the public schools educate two-thirds of the children of Australia, it's considerably less than what the other one-third are getting from the federal government. So that tells you what Josh Frydenberg and company and uh, Mr Morrison 
think about the children in our public schools. Trevor Cobalt from the state school lobby group Save Our Schools said that the large jump in funding for private schools was meant an acceleration in the long-standing large disparity in funding increases between the private and public schools over the next decade. So it really represents an attempt to privatise even more of our education systems by favouring the private sector. And this has been the result of special funding deals going back more than 10 years, but actually it goes back to 1973. There have been special funding deals. And they have had, the Morrison government themselves, have added a little bit on top. The Choice and the Affordability Fund, whatever that means, which was designed to help the Catholic and independent schools keep fees low. Well, my memory is that since the 1990s, all of these special deals have been to keep fees low, but the fees have kept going up regardless because these schools are selective schools. They select on the basis of ability to pay and privilege because what they've got to sell are networks amongst the privileged and the wealthy. Uh, Julie Sonneman, who's the Acting Program Director of School Education at the Vatney Institute, has claims that this choice and affordability is unnecessary and should be abolished. But Independent Schools Victoria has expense, expressed concern about the financial health of some schools because their business plan is in tatters because the wealthy international students are not coming. They can't come. We're in a time of plague. And dozens of private school principals have recently warned the loss of international students and the economic downturn have left them facing existential challenges, job losses and potential closures. Well, listeners, perhaps the time has come since we pay for them to take them over. $59 billion is a lot of money. From, and that's only, only from the Canberra Treasury. You add to that all of the other treasuries around Australia in the States, together with the taxation expenditures because they're charities that we've been talking about today. And we'd save an awful lot of money if these schools were open to all children and were made public schools. And if they didn't want that, then they could pay for themselves. So um, this is all very interesting, isn't it? Ms. Sonneman from the Grattan Institute says we're interested to see if the Victorian government puts new money down for COVID catch-up response for schools, especially tutoring. And we've heard this week that they are looking at that. So um, that's a very interesting article, uh, which we recommend. But now let's go to our great states. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Listeners, the great state school this week is the Lidale High School. It was in the news, in the age, and um, the headmistress was uh, very excited about her children coming back to school. What's going on here? 
Lilydale High School has got a number of other private schools near it, and yet it has an enrolment of 1,614. That's a very big school for what appeared to be really a really quite young lady principal to be in charge of, and uh, she's obviously doing a very good job. Uh, what kind of funding do these uh, 1,614 children receive? Uh, per student, they receive about 12,655 each, which is really under what uh, the resource standard should be. Uh, and yet, there are very, very few wealthy children or children from wealthy parents in this world. Uh, very few indeed. Uh, only 8%, whereas uh, the norm would be 25%. And there is quite a few middle class groups, but there are also quite a lot of young people uh, who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. But their, um, their NAPLAN results are pretty good. They're doing a good job, uh, particularly in their reading. Their reading is very good, given that there would be, and there is, quite a lot of children at this school who come from uh, other countries and have English as their second language. Their reading is very good. Uh, very good indeed. It's um, very much on the uh, on the average to above average. Their numeracy is also above average. They're writing, they're spelling, and their grammar. They're improving, uh, but just a little bit below. But this is not surprising, given that you're dealing with a very large enrolment, uh, and you don't have that many teachers there either. It's 136 teachers. And it's certainly being underfunded, I would say. Their total expenditure in this last year on capital expenditure, that's on their buildings, which are certainly not new, was only 72194 Now put that with the money that's been spent on Haleybury and other colleges we've been, been talking about. And you can see the disparity in Australia between the funding of wealthy private schools and a school like Lilydale, which is doing very well on 12,655 per student, where it should be getting about 14,000 at least per student. So congratulations to the principal and to all the students at Lilydale, and we wish them well in the future. But that's enough for us from this week. Uh, you've been listening to the Dogs Program. Thanks to Dale, who, under great difficulty, zooming away there, has actually uh, got us to air. And thanks to Oliver for coming uh, to read for us and his contribution. And don't forget, you can find us at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. For the moment, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I'm
In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there you find. I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I never died, You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.